Welcome back to the show, everybody. This is Wrestling Changed My Life. Today's guest is 2008 Olympian Andy Rovat, who spent over a year living in Ossetia, which is a province in the southern part of Russia where the large majority of the world's best wrestlers live and train. And so Andy got a firsthand look at their culture, how they think about training, how they think about mental preparation. And this is something a lot of Americans have always wondered, what the heck are these Russians doing to excel at the level they do year in and year out? And Andy spent a year there. So think you'll find this fascinating. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you again soon. Peace. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time. Enjoy the show. Well, I was a fanatic. There's no doubt a fanatic. My goal was to get carried out of the wrestling room because of exhaustion, and it never happened. The thing it did for me every day about 6 o'clock is that when I got out, I looked back in, and there was nobody else there. Bottom line was I didn't reach my goal. So guess what happened? I went back in the room again. But I got some quality time because of just some kind of a fanatic goal. Andy, welcome to the show, man. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for doing this, man. I know you've had a, a long and you know, seasoned career in wrestling, and you've, you had a lot of experiences that I think even some of our Olympians have probably never had. And so excited to get into that and, and your time in Russia. But yeah, in preparing for this podcast, I heard a stat that I got I to gotta run by you here. Is it true that you used to wrestle 200 matches a year as a, as a youth wrestler in Ohio? Yeah, my dad was crazy. Not crazy like he was pushing me, but he didn't really understand the sport. He never did it. And uh, so, I mean, that was a time where wrestling started going more from like, you know, local leagues and community programs to, oh, you got to keep up with the Joneses and do this, this, and this. And it was, I mean, I like I said, I loved it and I did it, but I would never promote that as a form of development for kids after having gone through it. That's, I mean, that's an insane number of matches, but you can imagine, I don't know if you've read the talent code, but if you, if you've read something like that or, you know, any, any, in one of those books where they kind of hint at the 10,000 hour rule, that can certainly get you there a lot faster. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, kind of, you know, I mean, I, I've read the talent code and I've, studied it in terms of development and but that to me competition is not the best form to to get you there interesting is that something you just picked up in your time in russia and we'll get into it but how do you mean by that well i mean like i mean you know you you said you've had jake on the podcast before and it's like you know this is some i you know i'm watching my nieces and nephews right now as we talk but you know, it's like no something I asked my nephew before. It's like, well, just because you, in baseball, you strike out one week and you hit hit a ball the next week, it doesn't mean you got better in that week. Or if you hit a ball this week and you don't hit a ball next week, it doesn't mean you got worse. You know, so that's the whole basis of competition is that kids and parents assume that because they do one thing one week that they are getting better or worse, where it's like, you compete once a week, maybe twice. Like I would go, you know, sometimes, you know, as a kid, I would do Friday, Saturday tournaments, sometimes Friday, Saturday, Sunday, multiple age groups. Um, but it doesn't mean 
I was getting better because you're spending most of your time in practice. Like think about like high school, you, you have five days of practice in a weekend tournament or maybe four days in two competitions a week, you know? So like your comp your practice and development is always going to outweigh any form of competition, especially in a combat sport, because you can never compete as much as you can train. That makes sense. And do you think that's the, the preferred way to do it? I mean, when I talked to Sergey, he said that in Russia, they won't even put their kids in wrestling tournaments for, for several years because they don't even know like basic body awareness, let alone wrestling movements. Right. And, you know, you wanted to get into some of the stuff that I learned over there. And, um, yeah. you know, that, that's, the, that's the first step. The first step is uh, anything in life, the first step is self-control. In, in wrestling, you get rewarded for controlling another person. And if you can't control yourself and you have physical limitations, how are you supposed to control another human being? And so, it, like, the, the, the biggest thing that kills me watching the sport of wrestling, especially when I was running a youth club, is you see the parents of kids yelling at kids to get out from the bottom. The kid can't do a push-up, and now he's got a 35-pound kid on his back. And they're trying to tell him to do a push-up with 35 pounds on his back. And it's like, <laughs> at what point do you think that your kid is actually going to be able to get out? Like, he's not physically able to do something himself, let alone with somebody on his back. You know, so it's like, well, yeah, self-control is number one. You know, that's the first part of development. It's the first thing you can control is yourself. I love that. And it makes so much sense, but you never hear anyone even talking about that, especially in the in the youth circles and you know i mentioned my brother and i we ran a, a freestyle and greco club uh, like eight years ago now but you know nowhere near the level of of time and dedication you spent into into coaching and so maybe just walk uh, for those listeners who don't know you just kind of walk us through your story i know you were a multiple time state champ at st ed and then you went to michigan but kind of just walk us through your story and, and maybe through the olympics and then how you got uh, got to the point where you ended up living in in russia for over a year with with the great uh, Malik Tadiev. Yeah, so I, uh, yeah, like you said, I grew up in Cleveland, which is a hotbed of wrestling. And, you know, I started in the YMCA programs. There's been a lot of, you know, great people in the YMCA programs. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, the, by the time I went to high school, uh, you know, I grew up in North Collinwood. Uh, the Cleveland City Schools didn't have any wrestling. So I ended up going to St. Ed's. And, uh, you know, I always tell people that was the best decision I, I ever made. Um, you know, just because, you know, St. Ed's was coming off of Howard Ferguson, uh, you know, and his philosophy was, you know, just if you want to be the best, you have to compete against the best. And so St. Ed's, we always competed against the best teams and best individuals. And they put me in a position where, um, you know, I was just getting unbelievable competition. Um, you know, and the expectations of being there wasn't like, oh, we just want you to graduate high school. It was, hey, you're going to graduate high school. You're going to go to college. If you stick with the wrestling, you're going to get a scholarship for college. You're going to wrestle in college and you're going to be an All-American. You're going to be a national champion. You know, and those are the expectations because other people have done it. Right. And so if you have a program where, you know, people haven't done something yet, it's very hard for you to understand that that is a possibility and there was endless possibilities at St. Ed's besides being an Olympian. That was like the only thing that nobody had done yet. 
And so, uh, you know, those were just outside the realm of possibility and I made it possible. I, you know, I went from St. Ed to Michigan, uh, you know, where I was a true freshman All-American. And, uh, you know, that was basically because, uh, you know, I went to St. Ed and I saw everybody else being All-Americans. And so I knew as soon as I got to college, I was able to compete right away and uh, win. And, uh, um, okay. Could you, it's okay. Uh, yeah. And so I, um, so, so I, yeah, I took that and, um, you know, it wasn't until I was 20 years old and I went from, you know, Michigan, I went to the Olympic training center for the, uh, Olympic camps in 2000. And I was hanging around the 2000 Olympic team and training with Charles Burton. It wasn't even until then that I knew that, you know, being a world teamer and Olympian, that that was a possibility. So that's so you, kind of you. You hit on some things I'd love to go back to, and it's if you, when you're around people who have done something before, kind of like when like a professional football player, his son becomes a professional football player. Like I wonder how much of it is the actual genes versus just the expectations and self belief that I can do this too, and like they can see themselves doing it for a really long time. And I think that's something key from the talent code. Like, wh- how, what do you think about that? Like, how much of it's genetics versus how much of it's the self-belief and expectations that, oh yeah, it's not some unsurmountable feat. Well, you can't, I mean, it's, it's hard. You can't take that and say there's a percent of the nature and nurture, you know, right. because you could have, you could have somebody, I mean, I've heard Mike Tyson talk about his kids, you know, he's like, yeah, I have kids. They want to <laughs> box. He goes, he goes, my kid can't box. He's like, he's like, he didn't grow up like I grew up, you know? And it's like, Mm-hmm. I grew up, you know, I grew up in, you know, in North Cleveland and, you know, it's in a mixed neighborhood. It was kind of rough. And, you know, like I can never replicate that for my offspring. Right. When I when I start having kids, you know, and it's like it, it's hard to say, like, oh, even if they're genetically the same, you could put them in a position to do something. But, um, you know, there, it, it, there's a lot to say about the environment and there's a lot to say about genetics. And I, and I still believe that, um, you know, wrestling is such a broad sport that it doesn't really matter what genes you have because you have physical characteristics and there's so many ways that you could put those physical characteristics together to make an ultimate wrestler. It doesn't matter if you have, you know, to me, the five physical characteristics that, that you, you train are, are your strength, which is uh, power and speed. So power times acceleration. And then you have your flexibility, mobility, then you have your proprioception, proprioceptive awareness, which is your balance, and then your kinesthetic awareness, which is how you move through space. And so if you know what your strengths and weaknesses are, it doesn't matter genetically what you have. You could, you could if you want to win, you could win as long as you, you have to have the want and you have to have the desire to, you know, put the time in to figure out those, what works best for you. Yeah, and that's that's a consistent theme with every guest is the self awareness that wrestling gives you is you have to take a really hard look, you know, probably every day or multiple times a day and understand where you need to improve and then get excited about improving those those deficits or maybe not even improving the deficits but doubling down on your strengths. You know, I guess that's another debate. Um, it's probably for another time. But I, I don't know. You just said something about the the St. Ed's piece about the expectations and self-belief. And I think it's just something where 
man, like what you believe is possible is, is such a, uh, seems like a crucial factor in determining one's success, no matter what you're doing, whether it's business, sales, uh, athletics, whatever it is. Well, even academic, right? Like if you go, if you're from a school district, you know, and that's the biggest debate. It's like we have areas of the country where it's like, you know, education is so poor and nobody has the ideas of, oh, I could go to, and that's why I want to work with Beat the Streets. It's like some of those kids in Beat the Streets, they've never known anyone to go to college. So it's like, is that a realm of right. possibility? And it's like, no, it absolutely is. And, and, and as long as you have people in your life who have done it and could push you to that, that becomes known. And once it becomes known, it becomes a possibility. And so that, that's what I love of the Beat the Streets mission is that, you know, they're taking these kids that never knew that it was possible to even go to a college, get them to go to college. You know, we're like, for me, I was lucky enough to be in St. Ed. And, you know, my possibility was, oh, we weren't just going to college. We were going to college and I was going to college to wrestle and be a, a All-American national champion. Right, right. And I'd love to parlay that into this little tiny region, uh, Ossetia, and then, you know, I know Dagestan's there as well. Now, all the wrestlers know this, but for the folks that don't, like this area of the world produces such a high percentage of world Olympic champions and medalists that it's, it's almost mind-boggling. I think I read, it, I read an article that said, in one of the Olympics, maybe it's 2008, like North America, South America, Africa, and Australia produced one medalist, and this tiny region produced the rest. You know, so maybe just kind of talk <laughs> us through talk us through that, and you know, how did you get there? Um, I heard maybe Chell Sonnen was involved, and like, what was it like over there? Just kind of take us through that that journey and that story. Yeah, so you hit on the 2008 Olympics, and after the Olympics. Um, you know, I I didn't do as well as I wanted. I lost to Cuba first round, and then he lost to Turkey. And so I was out of the tournament, uh, you know, and I started looking at all the people on the medal stands, and I'm like, there's a one common theme. These are all the same people. They may just represent different countries. And I was like, well, why, why are these people um, placing all the time year after year? And we struggle. It's like I worked hard as I could possibly work. You know, and I did everything I could possibly do that my coaches told me to do, do this, do that. And I did it. And I was, you know, basically lied to saying, oh, hard work. If you work hard, you'll win. Yes, but that makes zero sense. If you work hard in the wrong things, you're wasting your time. And so what <laughs> I did was, um, what I did was, uh, I decided to go. So that the Olympics were in August of 08. I decided to go to Ossetia and trained for a month before the Uregan in 2009 in January. And so that was my first glimpse. And then the next October, I went again for another month. And that's where I talked to Malikadiev and he was like, Hey, I could train you to be a champion. I know you want to be a coach. So I will um, teach you everything, but you have to come back for a long time. And so uh, it was then I decided to, uh, get a year visa so it took me a while to get the visa and then after the 2010 world championships in moscow um that's when i moved there now how different is Ossetia from dagestan uh once christian once muslim okay are they close in, in proximity though 
Oh, very close. That whole North Caucus region is, from what I hear, is half the size of Indiana. Okay. So half the size of Indiana is producing, you know, like you said, it doesn't matter what country they wrestle for because there's these, you know, it's kind of bizarre, right? It's technically Russia and maybe like the best guys wrestle for Russia, but then maybe the second best guy wrestles for Georgia or Bulgaria. Maybe that's not how it is, but that's, that's just kind of what I'm assuming. But it's not, so it's not the fact that you know, just because they're not with Russia, they're not from that area. They're representing all kinds of countries when in that region. Right. And, is that right? Right. And then, yeah. And, and I was talking about this uh, last night um, with Seth Patar. He's, uh, I, I've met him through Twitter, but he's a big international wrestling fan and he does a lot of rankings. You know, people don't really understand the region. They're not Russian. They don't consider themselves Russian. They wrestle for Russia because Russia occupies them. Uh, these people are nomad. Well, they used to be nomadic tribes people that moved to the mountains to escape Genghis Khan in like 10,000, whatever, 50 something. Right. Right. And so these, these people used to be on the, the Eurasian step. And, and that's why <clears throat> per capita, Dagestan is one of the most diverse places in, in the world. Um, you know, so they all came together to, to create Dagestan, all the tribes and, to create Ossetia and you know the Ossetians are pretty much one tribe but then you have the Chechens and Ingushetia, Karbatin, Bukhara and there's just all these regions down there that you know they have tribes and they have religion and they have uh you know they're Russian and it's like they just have so much that they're a part of that it's hard for people to understand it's like they don't care if they wrestle for another country because they wrestle for their tribe they wrestle for their people yeah, that's something we just, a lot of people can't, <clears throat> excuse me, wrap their head around. And sometimes they feel like it's foul play. But to your point, if the country doesn't mean anything to them, like they're part of their people or their tribe, so to speak. Now, what's, what's it like over there? Where were you living? Like, was it a house, apartment? I mean, it's, it's a very modest place for people who don't know. Um, what was it like? Yeah, it's, uh, well, it was like a step back in time. You know, people walk everywhere, you know, like, you know, you know, there's no nightlife because the women are in their parents' house until they get married. Um, you know, so you'd go out for dinners. You know, it was just a little different than I was used to. But uh, I was living in a dorm. Uh, I was living in a dorm in the woods. Um, you know, it was strange at first because, you know, they're in southern Russia by the Georgia border. They were playing war games all the time. Uh, you know, just to intimidate Georgia, you know, so like when they, in 2008, when they, you know, they, Russia didn't invade Georgia, they intimidated them and Georgia shot first. And that's kind of when they started the war. But, you know, that was the stuff that I was dealing with in terms of over there, you know, so it was just a little different, um, you know, being down there. I can't even imagine. And I would think though, as an athlete, like simplifying your life like that, really got you clear on what mattered and removed a lot of distractions. Like, and I know you've probably been asked this question about a billion times, but if you had to distill why this one region is so successful in a sport, like what, is it, what does it come down to? Is it the coaches? Is it the expectations? I mean, what is it about it? Well, it's, it's, it's a culture for sure. You know, they have a culture. They have a long culture of, you know, fighting in terms of like, my tribe, your tribe, you know, they're in the mountains, you know, they take pride in it. They have, 
you know, they have people in other areas, you know, it's like Ohio and Pennsylvania, right? Like you have those mm-hmm. people competing against each other, you know, it's kind of the same thing, but these, now these, you have the best athletes in the world and, you know, they've had a development system since the 1950s since after World War II and they haven't right. changed their training no matter what the rule set is. You know, we're like in America, it's like we have no standardized training. And so like, after the world championships last year, Tatiyev had an interview where he said the difference between America winning it two years ago and us beating them, even though we had, what, three world champs last year? He said the reason right. is because we have a system. We have a school. Like the Russian, the Russian school of wrestling is better than the American school of wrestling. It's like, yeah, there is no American school of wrestling. It's just, oh, I train my athletes this way because that's how I've always done it. And nobody has any science behind any of their training, not even college coaches. It's, it's like, you know, you think you're like, oh, you're at the pinnacle of college. It's like these coaches have no clue what they're doing. Like none whatsoever. None of them could even describe what the metabolic pathways they're supposed to be training in terms of getting you in better shape. But yeah, yet they're coaching at the highest level. Exactly. And when I say exactly, I mean that, yeah, because you're a successful wrestler, they become a coach, and maybe that's not always the way. Now, are the coaches in Dagestan, are they former great wrestlers, or are they professional coaches that went to school for coaching and, and know both. that type of – Both? Okay. Okay. Yeah, both, and so especially you, now because social media, now they're trying to get their biggest stars to stay in coaching, and they're promoting them to coach like Kadisov and Tagiev and, like, Guzmanov and Gisalov and some of those people. Um, they're they're coaching now because they're big internet stars, right? Instagram and Facebook, Twitter, and and so yeah. So, but it's a mix because, and, and that was like my biggest issue when I created the base wrestling training system is I actually created a system that made the coach obsolete. So like I'm sitting here selling this, not selling it, but like describing it to coaches, and they're like, well, what what you're basically saying is it's a system and it's not me. Where every coach in America has their ego, and they're like, no, it's what I do. If, I, if, these co- if these kids don't have me as a coach, they're not going to be successful. It's like, no, no, you're replaceable. Get out, get, get out of your ego. And, you know, I created a training curriculum that, that basically straight up said, like, nothing that I did was making these athletes better. Replace me with a monkey who could run this system, and the kids will still have the same development. What about my Tulsa medals, man? What about my, my Tulsa age group? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so take, and I do want, I definitely want to get into your, your system, but take us back to, you've been there two months in, you're part of the culture now. What time are you waking up? How many times are you working out? What are you eating? Like, what, what's it like? Give us a day in the life. Yeah. So I, I had a journal, um, and uh, I, I wrote it in, in it every day, and, and uh, I can't, I haven't looked at it in a while, but it was like something like waking up at eight. Uh, I would go for a walk or do something. They'd walk a lot in the morning just to get up and moving. And then uh, nine o'clock breakfast, uh, we would have like some kind of egg, like a porridge. So, like oatmeal, or like, I don't know, they had like seven different types of port like rice and i don't know they had a lot of different types of oatmeal and then we would have uh yeah like i said the egg and then maybe that that was pretty much it or yogurt or something like that some kind of dairy and then we would have uh 
then then practice would be at 11 that'd be the main practice of the day would be 11 and and you know to me that's scientifically the best time to train because your body's awake it's a combat sport you're ready to go whereas yeah. like you know a lot of times in Colorado Springs they would have us you know working hard at 8 30 in the morning it's like no but no scientist would say like that was a smart thing to do at 8 30 in the morning nine in the morning to put your body through a hard workout when fighting somebody else but yeah we would work out at 11 and then after that it would go from like it's you know really only an hour and a half like 11 to 12 30 then uh i would walk to practice every day 45 minutes um 30 for 30 to 45 minutes through the woods and then I, we'd have practice at 11 to like 12 30 then i would hitchhike uh back home to the dorm uh and then i would have lunch at one um and so lunch was always like some kind of homemade soup and then you'd have a protein chicken or fish something like that beef uh some kind of starch or like side so it'd be like rice pasta potatoes something like that and then mm-hmm. uh, at dinner it would just be like the meat and the potatoes or starch or you know it'd be some kind of protein with some kind of side they would always have almost every meal you would have a cucumber tomato salad and they would have a whole bunch of microgreens on the table garlic on the table and so you just eat a whole bunch of raw greens dude back to the basics man um yeah and what about and, and if we did two a day if we did a two a day the, the second practice would be at six and then dinner is at eight so that was my question was what about any type of structured running or lifting or they just get that through the practice yeah they just got that through the practice i see them sometimes like when i was there they started bringing this strength guy in from moscow and they would always make fun of him behind his back like what does this guy do you know like they were all functional <laughs> lifting you know they didn't like they didn't understand the concept. They, you know, they did a lot of rope climbs, a lot of plyometrics. Um, when we would get into heavy training, instead of walking in the morning, we would we would walk or jog as a team, and then we would do some partner lifts and stuff like that. And and that that was the extent of their lifting. You know, I never saw them doing power cleans and squats. And you know, Dagestan apparently does a lot more. Um, and you could see in their body type, but the Alsatians are longer, leaner type people. Um, yeah, they didn't really lift much. You know, they did a lot of like, uh, band work for their shoulders, you know, basically prehab shoulder treatment. So like a lot of shoulder rotations, you know, because shoulders are huge in wrestling. It's like, you don't have to be the strongest. You have to be strong enough, you know? And it's like, at what point are you? wasting your time working trying to be the strongest when you just have to be strong enough we have to be the best technical wrestler in the world you know and, and you know it's where you put your time and you look at and i don't know if satiev was osation or dagestani but you look at him versus Chechen. romero in two, oh, well, okay so but like him versus romero in 2000 i mean what a or maybe it was his brother in 2000 no no remember, that, that was his brother yeah that was that was his brother that was adam okay but, like, the body types are just, like, you nailed it. I mean, you know, you look at someone like Romero, who's a specimen, and maybe he's just like that naturally, but, you know, versus some of the some of the Russian guys, I say Russian, I, I really mean the Caucasus region, they're much leaner. They're right, almost like right. swimmers, you know? Um, yeah, you, so, especially Bouvesar. Right, right. I mean, that guy, you wouldn't think, I mean, 
Now, what about Karelin? Was he from that region or is he from a different region? Man, I'm not 100% sure. Their Greco team was made up of different people, but I think Karelin is Siberian, maybe. Okay. I think he's out by like Kresnyarsk. I mean, they have outliers once in a while because the Belaglazovs are from Kaliningrad, which is part of Russia that's not even part of Russia. It's like by Lithuania and Latvia still. They just kept like this tiny little port that is still considered part of Russia. And they spent a lot of time in Ukraine too. Um, after uh, after their initial entry to the sport, um, so it, you know, you say that it's like, man, I see all these videos online, even of our best wrestlers, like Snyder doing pull-ups with three hundred pounds between his legs. Like, and then you know, you look back at some of those videos when you were on the team in our weight, and it's like, I remember a, a video that Flo posted where it's like, you guys are running up some massive hill at Arizona State, and you know, you're it's fucking grueling work. And I don't know. It just seems like counterintuitive to everything you were learning over there. Did you feel like frustrated and like kind of pissed about it when you got over there and saw what it was like? Well, I mean, yeah, it it made me understand like what I was told my whole life was a lie. You know, it's like not one person had an understanding of the development that was in charge of my training national team coach all the way down to my college coaches. You know, it was a right. sham. It was like, oh, just work hard and do this. It's like, work hard at what? Like, you, you, you're like just all over the place. It's like, you know, and that was like when I started coaching the, the Olympic level, I never made my athletes do anything just because uh, this is why we always did it. I was like, well, if, if I need you to do something extra, you'll do something extra. But it's like the only thing I ever made my athletes do was walk up the hill. Like, they never had to run. Like, the conditioning was done through wrestling, you know? And so, um, right. so yeah, so it to me, it like, it made a lot of sense once I started breaking down their training curriculum. And I'm like, man, like we do so much that, that people think you have to be mentally tough for. It's like mental toughness isn't physical. Like everybody in America, especially wrestlers think that mental toughness means you have to do something physically tough. It's like, wait, like mental toughness is making a choice between one thing and another. You know, it's like, it's like saying, well, being mentally tough, I could go in a cold tub. That's not physically challenging. It is because it's cold, but it, it's not, I'm not pushing my body to the limit, right? So I could say, okay, well, I want to go in a cold tub and I'm, I want to do 10 minutes today. Well, mental toughness is saying, do, do I get out or do I stick it out for 10 minutes? It doesn't mean I have to push myself to the hardest possible limit. You know, and and, right. and to be honest, and that's the lack of understanding in terms of uh, training the metabolic pathways. If you don't even understand what the metabolic pathways do, you're never going to understand that. It's a progression that no matter, you can't just do high intensity work all the time and say, okay, well, you're going to be in great shape. It's like, no, there's a time where you got to train slow and learn. And then there's a time where you got to train medium. And then there's a time you got to train high intensity. And the high intensity is only seven to 10 days. Like your, phos- your phosphogen metabolic pathway is developed in seven to 10 days of high intensity training. You don't need six months, months of it of in it. the college season. Yeah. You know, and you that's why, that and that's another. Go ahead. Go ahead, man. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say that was one thing I came back. And the first thing I came back, I was like, well, the difference in training, I, I never saw anybody break out with herpes. And, you know, herpes on the face is rampant in college wrestling. And I asked one of my friends who uh, was the strength coach for us and were for me. 
at, at from 2008 on, and I was business partners with him in our youth program. His name's Mike Barwis. He's, you know, probably helped about 200 people who have been paralyzed walk again. He understands the human body probably more so than almost anybody in America. And I asked him, I said, do you, do you think the training in college is the reason why everybody gets all these outbreaks and they're so rampant? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. Because your central nervous system is broke down from so many months of ridiculous training. And that's also why there's a lot of injuries in college. And these college coaches have no idea that what they're doing is actually detrimental to their athletes. And it, but it's also like they kind of feel guilty. Like, man, if we're only working out once a day, are we really pushing the envelope? And they, I don't know, you know, <laughs> that's probably that's probably what what they're thinking. So you've mentioned a couple times the nervous system, and it's way above my head, even what you're saying. But maybe break it down, like what you mean by that when you say like the parasympathetic nervous system and it kind of what, what do you mean by that? How how they learn that? How they distill it to you? What is that all? How does that all come to play? Well, from what I understood was that um, you know this comes post World War II, where Nazi Germany was studying the human body, you know, and they had people studying the human body, and they had people doing rocketry and stuff like that. After World War II, it was like the expansion draft. I hear people talk about where it's like, ah, oh, we want this scientist, and we picked this scientist in round two, and it was between right. Russia and the U.S., and, you know, it's like we took Warner Von Braun in round one, and he <laughs> started NASA, right? And then the Russians were like, yeah. well, we're going to take these people because we, we have, we're the socialist republic, and it's like we need workers to work, and so they took scientists that had worked on the human body, and they broke it down, and they did experiments of their own, and they uh, from what I understood from uh, somebody that told me that they took um, uh, scientists that conducted studies on people who dug ditches and uh, they would dig ditches for eight hours a day and they would do it for months on end and they would take their all their hormone levels um, they would take uh, their BMI and then they would see where they would uh, go up right and so they're doing this manual labor and they're like oh well after you know after a month people started gaining weight and their cortisol level went up and this and that and they're like, okay well now we got to take the study and now as soon as that starts going up we got to give them a break and then we got to see how long the break is and then we push them again and then they finally figured out like okay well you push hard for three weeks you do it light for a week push hard for three weeks you do it light for a week and so if you go in that 90 days um, the first metabolic pathway you want to train is your oxidative, which is your fat burning metabolic pathway. And that's keeping your heart rate low under a certain number. Um, and then, uh, once you do that, then you, uh, and also building the habit is a 21 day cycle, right? And so the, the first cycle is you're learning and you're keeping your heart rate slow and you train your oxidative. And so you go three weeks on and then you have like a week on your own where like the coach isn't putting his thumb on you. It's just like, hey, you get in the room, you do what you need to do. You play some games, you have some fun, you enjoy yourself. Um, and, and so that's the first cycle. Then the next cycle is your glycogen metabolic pathway. And so you that that you increase the intensity a little bit. And um, there's only one part of the practice that ever changed. Right. And so. Um, it was the wrestling positions, 
And so I trained people according to Wolf's Law of Medicine, which states that the body will adapt and conform to the directions and entities you habitually subject yourself to. And so the habitually subjected to is keeping the same practice format. The, the intensities and the directions that alter in wrestling technique, you have directions of attack and directions of finish. So the directions of finish is what you altered. And so if you start in a position, so say like a high single, right? So every day we would do a single leg position, a high cross position, a failed attack position. So like front headlock, seatbelt, 50-50, and then we do an upper body position. So those are the four main positions in wrestling on the feet. And so if you start in that position, the only thing you could do is finish in a direction, right? So you have, you know, if you have a high single, you can circle in front, which is your dump, or you could circle behind which is your shell, mm -hmm. you know, and, and your treetop. And so if you alter the intensities of those directions, that is how you train the metabolic pathway. So the first month we did in those situations, we would do uh, three minute goes where there's no end. So you don't have to finish as fast as possible. So you learn how to control the position and how to maneuver within that position. Um, then the next month you changed it. It was six 30 second goes. So you said, okay, well, you have plenty of time to finish in 30 seconds, but so you still could be learning a position, but you have an end where you have to get out there and finish. Um, and then finally the last phase was uh, six, 15 second goes. And so now instead of learning a position, it's like you're eliminating all hesitation. You're finishing fast as possible in that position. And then you're getting right into your turn. And so that, that is how you go through the cycle of training the metabolic pathway. And they learn that by ditch digging <laughs> wow and so they just said like the ditch diggers they go like hey life sucks for you but you got to be our guinea pig and I or like were they just doing a normal job and they just happen to study them at the same time that i don't know but okay. but the technical aspect of the sport with how they understand how to teach it between the so technique and wrestling is only control and only direction that's the main component and that's my intellectual property that I copyright is like okay well when you break down technique you have what you can control and what direction you can go and you have a direction of attack what part of the body you can control and then what direction of finish and they learn that from chess I mean chess is an ancient game right like right. I saw yesterday that there was a 900 year old chess piece that just sold for 700,000 pounds right so like chess has been along forever and so when and this came from Josh Weiskin's book um, right. The searching for Bobby Fisher. And so like I, this really, this made me really understand the technical aspect after listening to his book when I came home. And so he said that in America, when American, uh, kids learn chess, they learn chess with every single piece on the board. Right. So if I make a move, you make a move, then I make a move. There's millions of ways that game can finish. There's a million plus different outcomes. So like, there's something in science called combinatorial explosion where it's like there's way too many possibilities that you're never going to be able to make a connection to understand what possibilities there actually are and where you should be putting your time and your effort. Right. And so where in Eastern Europeans learn how to play chess, they learn how to play chess with a king and a queen. And so you learn wow. the two big, you, you learn the two most important pieces. You learn how to control that board. And then you learn how, what directions they can go in, right? So when I broke that down, I said, oh, this is simple, right? And so we kind of talked about this before we went on the recording, but 
there's five things that I learned with the Russian training system is one, the first thing that you can control is yourself, right? Wrestling is a sport where you, you get rewarded for controlling another person. If you can't control yourself, no luck you're controlling another human being, which is why mm-hmm. I see like martial arts studios. Oh, this is self-defense. No, it's not. You can't defend yourself unless you can control yourself. You're teaching, you're teaching people how to do something that they're never going to be able to apply, right? So that's not self-defense. Self-defense is number one, learning how to control yourself. Step number two is controlling your environment, right? What does that mean? It's the chessboard, it's the wrestling mat, it's the soccer field, it's the baseball field. How do you control that environment, right? You have to know where you are in that space for the game, right? So step number one is control yourself. Step number two is to control your environment. So wrestling, the environment is the mat, right? So you could circle left, circle right, move forward, move backwards. Um, and then you could use body fakes, you could use level changes, and you could use hand fighting to control the, the space, right? Because hand fighting is not controlling the other human being. There's zero control in there, right? Like, there, um, I will, don't say zero, but there's minuscule, minuscule control when you're actually hand fighting somebody, Dude, right? And you so then, hate hand fighting. I love hearing you go and rant about hand fighting. No, it's ridiculous. Oh, like that, but hand fighting is one third, right? So like, it, well, it's actually one fourth, right? So there's movement, there's body fakes, there's level changes, and there's hand fighting, right? So when you just focus on hand fighting, you're not focusing on level changing and, and body fakes, right? And so you got to put it all together. <laughs> like, and it, you know, it's just like, they, they think we're cavemen in Russia because all we want to do is fight with our hands. They're like, you guys have no technique. That's ridiculous. Um, so you control yourself, you control the environment, and then number three is yep. you control your attacks, right? And so controlling the environment is a setup to control for your attack, right? Because that's the first direction, what what uh, your attack is, right? You can attack upper body, attack lower body. Um, and then from there, then you get into a situation, right? Once you attack, then you actually get into a real wrestling situation, um, which is right leg, left leg, bail attack, upper body. Right. Those are the four. That's that's simple, situ- huh? Those are the four. That, it's that simple. Right. Upper body. You have uh, over under on one side, double over under. Right. Which is what we typically think of over under. And then you have uh, two on one. Right. That is all upper body. And then you have. Uh, yeah. Then single leg. You have high you have single, right, medium left. single. Yeah. Ex- yeah, yeah. Right. Left. You have four positions in each leg. And then you have fail attacks, which I said, front headlock, keep all 50 50 positions. That is all of wrestling. Um, and then once you're in the situations, then you have your direction of finish. So that's the fifth, right? So control the situation, then control the finish. And you want to talk about how wrestling changed your life. Well, this is life, right? Like if you want to, if you want to change the outcome of your life, you, it, you have to look at all of that, right? So in anything, in school, work, family life, you have to one have self-control you know you have to change your environment if you want to change yourself like right now i'm trying to help my brother with his diet and it's like well no why are you putting all that pressure on yourself to make decisions in your house when the first decision should be at the grocery store don't buy it then you won't ever have to make a decision if you're going to eat something better right you make the decision once not millions of times when you're walking by your pantry right that that change your environment (laughs) right so so you know like you don't have to do these in order because to me you want to start with the end because if you want to change your direction of life you want to start at the end you want to 
tell yourself that story, right? So in wrestling, the end, the finish is actually moves, right? In life, that finish is telling yourself a story like, I'm going to college. I'm going to be an All-American. I want to be a millionaire. I want to do this. I want to be a doctor, right? And so you start with your story because nobody's going to change themselves and dumb luck into doing something amazing, right? And so um, there's a lot of correlations to me in, in what you can control in wrestling and how you can control your life, right? So start with self-control. Make sure the environment you're in is good. Surround yourself with like-minded people right? You're the sum of the five people that you surround yourself the most. Uh, then it's like, Hey, you're attacked. Right. So like for me, I said, you know, before I went to Russia, I was working my ass off and I was doing all the wrong things. Right. I wasn't attacking the right thing. So, so learn what you, the, the best focus is to get the most gains out of what you're trying to accomplish. Right. So what are you attacking? Right. And then the situation is really hard for some people because Controlling a situation means being present in that moment, right? If I was on my phone looking through Instagram while we're having this conversation, I wouldn't be in that moment, right? I would be, I would be my mind would be spaced out and I wouldn't know what I was doing, right? So, so being in a situation is actually just being present, which is very similar to wrestling. Be present. Don't try to get to a finish and get to somewhere that you have no understanding of. And then, obviously, like I said, the, you know, you always want to start with the finish. So control yourself, control your environment, control your attack, control your situation, and control your finish. And that's all you need to focus on to get better, not in wrestling, but in life and anything else. Powerful Andy Hrovat, man. Oh, my God, dude. This is, this is fire. One, last thing I got to ask you about uh, in, our, in our closing remarks here is what about the concept of visualization? and like meditation do they do that a lot what's your thoughts on that uh you know that's great right um <clears throat> visualization is good um you know because the people who who think about what they want more often are, are going you, you can spend a lot more time without putting your body through hell to to get to somewhere where you want to be um and but no they definitely do a lot of meditation right and um, this is one thing when I first started talking about uh, controlling yourself, right? So controlling yourself is, yeah. is there's a, so, certain things that you could do every day to control yourself. You have, you eat, you drink, and you breathe, and then you have your activities and you have your rest, right? And so meditation is a big part of, of self-control <clears throat> because you can meditate and, and breathe different ways to either get yourself into your sympathetic uh, system or your parasympathetic system. So your fight or flight or your rest and relaxation. And I didn't really get into the, to the timing of the training, but the timing of the training from one practice to the next was give, giving you enough time to bring yourself down, bring yourself up. Um, so you have like little mini cycles within the cycle of a month um, in terms of when you go hard and when you go light. Um, but the, the breathing is a huge component and I blew Jordan Burroughs' mind when I started talking to him about it. He goes, you know what? I never thought about this before. And this was probably like 2013, 14 ish. And cause he was like, Oh, everybody knows how to breathe. And I'm like, no, Jordan, there's so many different ways where you can breathe. And we started talking about it. He's like, Oh wow. You know, because breathing is a form of fuel, right? Like your oxidative yeah. system is, you know, oxidative is breathing, right? It's fat. It's, 
you know, and, and you, you, you could definitely alter that by, you could alter your life by doing that. Right. And then you, and then the more you could breathe and have a singularity focus of just blocking everything out, then when you're in a situation, you're actually more present. And so it actually feeds off of each other. So are you talking about Wim Hof techniques or are there other techniques that are, I mean, there's millions, I'm sure, but like, is there anything that the listeners could, could look up to and maybe start to dabble in this? Uh, I mean, just type in breathing techniques, you know, there's so, there's so many to calm down right. and, you know, there's like box breathing where you like, you know, four seconds in, hold it, four seconds mm -hmm. out, hold it four seconds, you know, so it's all the same time, right? So the amount of time you're breathing in, the amount of time you're holding your breath, then blowing out your breath and then not inhaling, you know, and, you know, there's just so many. And like, the one thing that I haven't gotten into is the Kundalini breathing, which right. is, uh, one of the Gracies was really big into that. Um, but that's what I want to get into next in my yoga practice, because I just went from Bikram to uh, Vinyasa and eventually I'll get into the kundalini and learning how to you know they call it the breath of fire right so if you want to get yourself pumped up and ready to go that's what you want right but in between matches you want to have your parasympathetic nervous system where you it's rest and relaxation right which is to me like kind of funny like you know quick story i was with dave habit and we were uh at the mongolia for the olympic uh qualifier in 2016 and I sent a picture of him playing on his Nintendo DS 10 minutes, 15 minutes before he was wrestling one of his matches. And I sent it to the strength coach, Mike Barwis, that I had talked about. And he goes, yeah. oh, good. He's ready to go. I sent him a picture of Dave Havitt playing a video game. He goes, oh, good. He's ready to go. Right? Like any coach in America would be like, get off that shit and get your mind focused and get ready. It's like, wait, the match can't happen until the match actually starts. So there's no point wasting your energy thinking about this match you've already done the training you already know what to do you just have to flip a switch and get on the mat and go and so what he would said he, he he said like he used to see kale playing video games it's like no you want to get out of your mind and you want to be involved in something and do something so draw write you know play a video game and get you out of being in that moment which takes you to your parasympathetic and so now your body's resting and recovering well, your mind is doing something mindless. And then, yeah, you put it down. You're like, okay, you're in the hole. Then he puts his thing down. He gets up, he gets ready, and he goes out and he wins his next match. You know, and it was only because, not only because, but it's like, hey, that was part of the reason. It's like, hey, we, I don't need you to be ready until the match actually comes up, right? And so, um, How the hell are you not breathing? Trying, and, man, look, this is insane to me. Like, all this knowledge. Like, I know you're working with Beat the Streets now, but... Dude, I feel like you should be running some type of academy somewhere with like a boarding school of kids. I don't know, man. Like, what, what do you think about <laughs> I mean, like, I've been offered, but that's not what I wanted. You know, like, I just, I wanted to do business. I never thought coaching yeah. was a full-time job. You know, like I said, like, I, I think that I could train people and I could give people the, 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 the tools and knowledge to do it. But when I was, when I was coaching for the eight years I did, I mean, it, it, to me, like, I, I'm more of an introvert. And it's like the, the amount of relationships and, and the amount of time you have to foster those relationships to making great, great athletes was way too much than I ever saw myself being able to be involved in. Um, I loved it. You know, I loved every minute of it. But 
you know, it, it put a toll on my marriage and, you know, it, it was just, it was very difficult having those intimate relationships because you got to be able to do everything for your athletes. And I did do everything possible for my athletes. Um, anything they needed, I would do. Um, and, and that to me is just was too difficult, you know, you, and I knew you could do it, you know, eight years really at a world-class level. And then you're toast, you're fried, you know, maybe 12, yeah. if you, well, if you have a good support group, I didn't have a good support group where I was at, you know, so like I couldn't have gone 12. Right. But if you have a good support group, eight to 12 years, you could do anything at a world-class level. After that, you're kind of just coasting. Right. And you Man. see it at college level. God. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just blown away by this conversation. I, I'd love to have you back on, man. I know we're at the top of the hour here. Um, but, man, appreciate your time so much. Um, if you, well, One last question, I, and I wanted to ask you this, was if you, you know, we think about how wrestling changes lives and it you know, to, builds the foundation for success, how would you think a wrestler in Ossetia would say wrestling changed your life versus an American and changed how like they, cause like you talked to all the Americans like hard work, mental toughness. That's what they always say. And there's nothing wrong with that. But like, how would you think someone from Ossetia would say like wrestling changed their life? I would think more in the long, along the learn, along the lines of problem solving. <laughs> it's a it's a problem, right? Like, Got it. It's, you're right. And, and to me, like, I don't think they say like, oh, it's the hard work. It's the dedication. I think it's the learning and the, uh, to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt. You learn different things. You learn how to solve problems. I, I would think they would be more on a line of the mental because th- to me, when I talked to them, it was all about strategy and tactics. Right. Like how, how do you, they, you know, they would go, you know, Airbag Farnia was one of my best friends there and, and he would talk to me about strategies and tactics of different countries. Like when we wrestle somebody from Iran, you know, all they're doing is pushing you just like an American. And he's like, so if they're just pushing you, you use that against them. Right. And so it's more like the art of war in terms of that is how they approach the sport. Right. And that's the learning and that's the adapting because hard work is relative, right? Like it could be hard for one person and not for another. And if you enjoy what you're doing, no work is hard. It's just work. And you roll that, you're a bad man. You're dropping some knowledge here. I appreciate your time, brother. Uh, like I said, we'd love to have you back, you know, intermittently here and, and kind of keep this conversation going, man. Thanks for your time. Have a great That's, day, brother. Yeah, you too, Ryan. Thanks for having me. That's the end of this episode, but definitely not the end of the show. For more episodes, please go to WrestlingChangeMyLife.org. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a star rating. Show the love, baby. Show the love. Thank you so much. We'll see you again soon. Peace.